Welcome to the Guernsey Press Politics Podcast with me, Simon Delarue, and my co-host, Matt Fallais. We have two special guests today, the uh, two presidents of the parliamentary committees uh, for the states. That is the president of the States Assembly and Constitution Committee, Deputy Carl Neerveld. Welcome. Thank you. And uh, the President of the Scrutiny Management Committee, Deputy Yvonne Burford. Welcome to you. Thank you. Thanks for coming in today. We've got, uh, I feel, lots to talk about. And uh, Matt has kindly arranged all the last week's worth of uh, Guernsey Press copies out in front of us because we've been running a few headlines that uh, might have been keeping you and your committees uh, busy or thinking about uh, future work. Can we start, first of all, Deputy Meerveld, with the ongoing issues around the Development and Planning Authority, because this is a, a story that has been running and running in local media, including in our pages. There's an issue, uh, a dispute over who holds the vice presidency of that authority. Can I start by asking you, what is the significance of a vice presidency within a committee? Why is it a big deal from that point of view? Well, actually, it's quite interesting, because in our system of government, which is extremely flat, the relevance of a president is relatively limited in that all committee decisions are made by majority. The president nor the vice president have a swing vote or a carry vote in the case of a tie. Uh, Really, they're just representatives of the group voice. So, for instance, I have a policy letter coming up, uh, or sorry, SAC has a policy letter coming to the States uh, this week, uh, or next week, and the the speech is written and approved by the committee. It's not written by me. Um, uh, So I am just the voice, the spokesperson for the committee. And in the absence of the president, the vice president takes that role. So again, the president, one of its few, my few exclusive uh, responsibilities within committee is to chair meetings. But if I can't make uh, a meeting, then my my vice president takes that role. So it is a backup to the presidential role, but the presidential role in itself is simply as a spokesperson or representative for the collective group group in our consensus government. So a relatively unimportant title in terms of uh, the power wielded by the position, then a vice presidency of, an, of, the, of the DPA. Why do you think there has been such a uh, degree of ruction in who uh, should take on that position within an authority? Is it just simply politicking? Is that all it's about? Well, I think there's probably a bit of politics, a bit of personality. Now, I don't want to get involved in in an internal dispute of another committee. But as you said, it is not uh, the the actual position carries very little um, real power or status. Uh, I've got a feeling it's more to do with the personalities and some of the issues that gone before, because one, one has to remember that in that particular case, Andy Taylor had resigned. And then just over a month later, on the day that it was being uh, his replacement was going to be nominated by the Assembly. He decided to withdraw that pot, uh, that uh, um, resignation. Yeah, so he, he hadn't resigned. Had well, he, no, he, he, he had submitted he, a resignation he, some month or so earlier to the committee. Oh, but but then, that wasn't, isn't that effectively uh, an announcement of an intention to resign? It, does, it doesn't have immediate effect, does it? So it, it, it would it be does, accurate it, to say it, he'd, he'd announced his intention to it resign. It doesn't. Uh, well, uh, you've submitted your resignation just as you would do with a okay. company, and then you work your notice period. Right. So effectively that was happening. Um, the way it works, because the Assembly appoints all members of committee, only the Assembly can remove and replace members. Therefore, it comes back to the Assembly effectively as a policy letter 
um, and to nominate a replacement. And on the day that was happening, um, Deputy Taylor decided to withdraw his resignation, so therefore the policy letter wasn't laid, but he didn't bother telling his president or the committee or anything else. So there's there's ruction and friction there that I think has uh, uh, gone from the point where he resigned and criticised the committee to the point where he withdrew his resignation and decided to stay and then wanted to assume or maintain the same position. But at the end of the day, I think the whole thing is unfortunate because, you know, if you think about it, we've just... Uh, rejected GST as a tax. The states as a whole is having to uh, now face up to the potential cuts or reduction in size of government that's going to be necessitated because of the uh, growing shortfall in tax income compared to our expenditure. And I, I think most people in the public domain, and, and certainly some deputies view this as an argument over deck chairs on the Titanic, when we surely should be focusing on steering away from the iceberg. So you, you feel it's a it's an unwelcome distraction? I, I think it is. I, I understand that it's a motive and the people involved, and it, it's escalated for various reasons. But yes, it is not, in my opinion, um, crucial to the business of government, and we should be focusing on other things. And I hope that this is resolved and we can move on very quickly. Yeah. No, uh, nevertheless, it has clearly uh, taken up the, uh, the the mental energy of a lot of deputies over uh, recent times. D- do you think that, as the president of State Assembly? Constitution Committee, you might be able to do something to avoid this happening again in future? Uh, yes. The, the committee actually met yesterday and considered a paper on this issue. Now, what we did not consider is what has transpired in the Development Planning Authority. We looked generically at the rules and said, as a committee, how do we believe they should work or what is their in, you know, uh, desired outcome? And the committee unanimously decided that they think that a committee should be able to, uh, as it's delegated the authority to elect a vice president, it should have the uh, the, uh, authority to change the vice president. But after consultation with the law officers who said it's silent on that specific issue, but there are some other instances which are stated where they can re-elect it, it's a grey area, then we've resolved at the committee that the next time we do a policy letter relating to rules, we will propose to the Assembly a clarification of the rules to make that ability more explicit going forwards. What we have not done is uh, in any way pass judgment or been, uh, become an arbiter for what has happened within the DPA now. But we will provide that advice and we'll be hopefully doing it today to all members, all committees, so that uh, the opinion of SAC is there that this should be allowed and that if there is, uh, uh, as there is um, ambiguity in the rules, that we will address that in the future. Uh, Deputy Burford, can I ask for your take on this whole uh, fracas? Well, it's, I, I'm quite astounded, really, that so much sort of energy and political capital can be spent on trying to change something which has so little actual, you know, relevance or importance in, in, in how the committee is run. I think it's as simple as that. And uh, actually, I'll ask you, Matt, because uh, as, as the person at the press who's been most across this uh, particular story, um, do you, what do you feel is the, uh, the justification from a media point of view of pursuing this story? So we've talked, we've heard from our guests about the, the procedural issues um, and Deputy Mirveld has qu- quite properly pointed out the, the role and the li- limited role of SAC in this area. Um, but what we've been focusing on all week or for some weeks now is the claim that Deputy Oliver, the president of the DPA, repeatedly misled the committee uh, in 
the in her ongoing efforts to try to oust Deputy uh, Taylor as her vice president and replace him with Deputy Dyke. Uh, now, she admits that she has misled the committee, but she says that it, it's been inadvertent. Uh, other members of the committee take a different view. I mean, I, I think the issue that it really is is whether there has been such mismanagement of the committee in this instance. This whole matter has been allowed to drag on for so long uh, when the advice of the bailiff and the senior most law officers seemed to be very clear right at the beginning, which was that the, at the moment there isn't any provision in the rules to replace a vice president. And uh, the, the question that a lot of people are asking is, since this has been such a mess, since other members of the committee feel they have been misled by the president, shouldn't she consider her position? And, and Deputy Furbrush, as president of PNR um, in the press today, uh, has felt sufficiently strongly to, to come out and, and you know, publicly offer his backing to Deputy Oliver. So I think there is a legitimate question over whether her position is tenable now as president of that committee. Thoughts on that, other of our um, guests? It, it, it has been a, a, a great distraction, this whole process. And um, I, I also regret that it's dragged on as long as it has for something that I consider to be um, a minor issue uh, uh, when you look at the overall objects of the states. But I, I measure people not by mistakes they've made, but how effective they are in the role. And I am lucky in this in this respect, my perspective on this is is coloured by the opinion of my brothers, who are two of the largest developers on the island, and other people in the construction industry, of course, I know through those family connections. And they consider Deputy Oliver to be one of the better presidents of the DPA from a functional perspective, because, of course, she is a qualified surveyor. She has some industry background. And they actually think she's doing quite a good job. And have told me that they would regret to see her go. So... Um, it's whether or not the states believe that the procedural mishandling of the committee justifies potentially removing a, a president, because I don't think she intends resigning. Uh, but also, we've also got to look at that, that issue. The iceberg is ahead. We've got to change course. We have a president that certainly, as far as the functions of the committee, the underlying function of the committee, seems to be doing a reasonably good job and is appreciated by the industry, which not all committees can say, the, the industries that, that are affected, which certainly not all presidents can say. Um, I would be uh, reluctant to waste more time trying to, you know, look at replacing, uh, even discussing replacing that president. Uh, let's just move on with the more important issues that face us and put this behind us, and hopefully this will be resolved very shortly. And Deputy Burford, uh, Deputy Oliver has admitted to misleading her um, committee, fellow committee members. Um, she said it's inadvertent, so she's, she's fessed up uh, as far as that is concerned. Does she retain your confidence in her position there? Well, I think I'll just go to the comment that the Chief Minister made, um, you know, Deputy Fairbrush, where he said he supports her, and he's absolutely within his rights to, to do that. What, what I thought was a little more strange was the fact that he didn't just stop at saying that. He then said, but I think that um, Deputy Taylor should resign. Now, I wasn't entirely sure from the report, and I probably read it in haste, um, as to whether he meant um, resign from the committee or resign from the vice presidency um, 
position. But in, in any case, I just thought that was truly unhelpful because if part of Deputy Fairbrush's approach to um, giving Victoria his support, and I think this is part of his approach, is that he wants stability in the States. He's, he's made it clear on a lot of other things that have happened that he that he wants stability. He thinks that, you know, attempts to unseat committees or unseat members of committees are, are not appropriate. Why would he then following it up, follow it up, suggesting that somebody should be unseated? It really is quite remarkable. Uh, Deputy Mervold, you raised your finger there. Do you have insight into his thinking? Well, I, I would just add the, the comment that um, we are uh, our flat structural consensus government is quite unusual without parties, etc. Not at least not effective parties in the style of the UK or the US or all European countries. Um, it's unusual in that we serve both as committee members, but also as independent uh, parts of the executive and as parliamentary parliamentarians scrutinising legislation and even effectively the legislature in the passing legislation. We, we wear multiple hats, something I'm very familiar with. The um, So, for instance, in my SAC meeting yesterday, one of my members said, actually, I would like to get more involved in commenting on uh, the issues at the DPA. And I said to that member, you're perfectly welcome to do that as an individual member expressing your personal opinion outside of this SAC meeting. But inside SAC, as we're up, as you are now sitting as a SAC member, we need to look at this from the perspective of the committee and the limit of our mandate. And I, I suspect that uh, Deputy Fairbrush was expressing his personal opinion as an individual deputy rather than the president of PNR. And, and also, uh, I suppose, again, when we look at this um, more from a distance, we have a flat structural government that's based on consensus, not an executive government. The fact is, the majority of the committee have voted that they would rather not have Deputy Taylor there. I, I'm surprised that in that situation where you're told the majority in a consensus government, uh, you know, don't want you holding that position anymore, that he feels that he should hang on to it. I'm, I'm not quite sure what his logic is for wanting that position because of the reasons we've discussed that it has very little influence, power or status, that um, uh, in a consensus government, a majority has said they don't want him here. You know, the question is, uh, I, I don't know, and I can't answer for him, why Why is he desperately holding on to this and why has this dispute uh, uh, appeared? Uh, just for clarity, when you say that position, we are talking about his holding of the vice presidency, Correct. not his seat on that uh, authority. Or, although, of course, he has already resigned his seat once or at least submitted resignation and, and, then withdrew, and withdrawn. I've got a couple of questions which I think our guests could deal with quite quickly in, in, in closing this subject. What, one is for Deputy Burford, which is th this is a very different states from the states you served in between 2012 and 2016. Do you think it's fair to say that in that state, so in, in the previous states, the DPA may now have faced some kind of motion of censure or motion of no confidence, uh, even leaving aside the issue of who misled whom, but this kind of ongoing mismanagement of the issue might well have taken it into the states, don't you think? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that I really can't conceive of the situation having arisen uh, in, in that particular state. I mean, it's like a different country to go from that state. I mean, I didn't have the advantage uh, that two people here had of sitting in the 16 to 20 states. And maybe if I had, then I would have seen the tradition, uh, sorry, the transition from what, um, what I was accustomed to, to what I arrived in in, in 2020. But so I think the answer is um, 
if it had arisen, but I couldn't see it, yes, I think it would have done. I mean, when we look back to that states, I mean, uh, I think the Health and Social Care Committee um, faced a successful, I mean, I'm sure Matt will correct me if I've remembered the details wrong, but a successful vote of no confidence for for an underspend of, it might have been a million pounds, sorry, an overspend of, it might have been a million pounds. And, you know, when we look at the kind of way um, committee overspends are, and project overspends are slushing around at the moment and yet there doesn't seem to be I, I, I it would be unfair to say there's no concern but there certainly doesn't seem to be any questioning about the committee the committee and I'm not you know I'm not here saying that I think there's any issue uh with the competence of health and social care this time or anything I'm not I'm just looking at it as how one state's operated in comparison to this state's I mean I, I don't think that we will see and I'm not again I'm not saying we should but I don't think we'll see any motions of um, confidence in in any committees because it's it's just not the fabric of this assembly I think there's there's obviously a built-in majority um, on one side of the assembly which I think um, stops that sort of thing from happening whereas going back to 2012 to 16 it was much much more fluid you couldn't always predict how people would vote particularly on slightly more controversial issues so that i don't think there are any comparisons that can be made in that sense and deputy mirveld you you know the rules better than anyone else as president oh, of the, well, or you should anyway as, as president of the state yeah. and constitution the the outcome here is going to have to unless deputy taylor resigns the outcome if this committee stays together, is going to be that he will continue as vice president and Deputy Oliver is going to have to concede and accept that, isn't she? Because there isn't any provision for her and the majority of the, the DPA to remove Deputy Taylor. Isn't, isn't, is that uh, your interpretation of uh, it? I, I, again, it, it, it's an internal matter for the committee to deal with. Now, I have yeah, but been, you know the rules as, as well as I, I do. And, and, I, I, you, and you, you share that interpretation, don't you? Um... Not necessarily. I mean, I mean um, uh, His Majesty's Procurer came and gave advice to our committee, and I know has been giving some advice to the uh, uh, DPA. I know that previously they received law officer advice saying they could remove it, but then that, that was um, rescinded and changed. And this is part of the confusion, I think, is advice is given. Again, our officers supplied advice initially that said they could remove it and then it brought to committee and the committee said the tent might be there but the rules are silent and, and um, his majesty procurer said that to us the rules are silent on this issue there it's a gray area now saka said certainly going forward this is how we think it should work it's going to be up to the dpa to decide how they want to handle this issue and i think they've got a, a while well, i know they've got a meeting uh, booked for monday because i'm invited to it as long with the her Majesty's procurer to try and resolve this issue once and for all uh, but it will be up to the committee to to come up with a resolution and um it can be challenged by the assembly it could go further i don't know but um i hope it doesn't because We've got other things we need to focus on. Okay, so uh, let's let's move on, but not very far, to a related um, issue, which is uh, well, I'm turning to Tuesday's uh, paper and Matt's uh, uh, headline or story, I should say. We don't, as journalists, write the headlines. Just get that in there. Um, plot to remove E and I is personality politics. Now, um, Deputy Midvale, can I start by asking you? It was news to me. Um, when when I read this, actually, that um, the president of Environment and Infrastructure uh, d- d- talking about 
a move she had become aware of to oust uh, her through a vote of no confidence. Were you approached uh, by anybody seeking to gain support for such a motion? No, I, I, I didn't know anything about this until I read the headline myself. And, and how, how did you respond to reading about that? What have they done wrong to justify it? You know, what's the smoking... You know, um, uh, Deputy Burford used the example of the previous assembly that wasn't in the 2012-2016 the assembly and somebody being, uh, you know, a committee being uh, ousted for an overspend of a million pounds. And the fact is, she's absolutely right. There are bigger overspends now that require greater scrutiny and I can actually address that as an issue in the States as part of the working group I'm part of for reshaping government. Um, but there has to be a very good reason to remove the president of a committee because effectively it removes the entire committee. Now, what's the impact of that? You have a new coming committee coming in who may decide that their policies are different to the previous ones. You may have a change of policy direction. But you also require a considerable period of induction of that new committee to bring them up to date on where the, where the portfolio of that uh, committee is at at the moment, what projects are in progress. You're talking about months of disruption, anywhere between three and six months, I would have thought, before the new committee get their, get their legs under the table and start really managing portfolio. And... You're talking about potential change of policy direction with a new committee. That's incredibly disruptive. Um, now, some people may desire it, others not. But, but look at it from a good governance perspective. To cause that disruption and, and shift members around, what is the justification? What's the smoking gun? What, what's the, a very good reason to justify going to that length? And I'll be quite honest, whilst... Um, uh, 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 Deputy Lindsay's summary and I don't always agree on policies I, I don't think she, I haven't seen anything she's done that I would say was anywhere near justifying emotion and no confidence and uh, as the deputy that sits on the other side of uh, Deputy Summary in the in the States, if I got that right. No, I'm um, sitting next to oh, okay. <laughs> I sit in between the two. No. Yeah, um, I imagine you agree with much of what uh, Deputy Mirvelt has said there. Yeah. I, um, the one thing I would sort of just um, expand on that Carl has said is the, the way he set it out. Um, of course, you cannot, under the rules, call a vote of no confidence in a single member of the committee. It's pure. It's in the entire committee. But there are um, occasions when some of that committee may well be re-elected because the actual vote of no confidence is, even though um, not overtly, directed at a member or certain members. And I think in this case, the, the rumblings that we've heard weren't, weren't about the whole committee. I think they were personal to Deputy de Summary. Um, so, you know, you say that setting up the committee of sort of five new people, I don't think it would have been five new people. We're, we're, we're thin on the ground for people on committees anyway. And I think it was a, a, a sort of a direct, um, directed towards Deputy de Summary. I'd not, uh, I haven't been asked to sign any such thing. That probably comes as no surprise to anybody because I'm, you know, I think I would have given it extremely short shrift and anyone who was trying to put this idea together, I'm quite sure I'd be last on their list. I think Deputy de Summary is extremely competent, one of the most competent members of the States. Um, but I had heard rumblings and rumours about it maybe, I don't know, six or nine months ago. And I was rather hoping it was just one of those silly things that had gone away. I, 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 um, this came out of the blue as far as I was concerned. I hadn't heard any of these rumblings. Uh, clearly, the three of you know a lot more about this th than I. So w w where's it all come from? I mean, you're 
it's clearly both of the opinion um, that Deputy Summer is in, entirely competent. You might not agree with all her decisions, but you, you're, you, they have, she has your confidence. What, what do you think has sparked this? I don't think from I, what you've heard. Yeah, I, I, I'm not. I'm not prepared to speculate on that because I don't think it would be reasonable to do so. Do you do you even know whether you're willing to tell me or not? Do you even know who originated it? I've said again. I've heard rumours about that, but I don't think that's fair to just put out rumours. Okay, um, but we. Uh, I, I, I say I wasn't asking you to confirm who it yeah. was, just whether whether you actually had an idea, because I'm interested to know how how much deputies know about the other sort of uh, you know goings on of other deputies and their motivations and things like that. You know, but you you're not even aware of where's the, where this is coming. No, from. I was vaguely aware of where it was coming from, but it's it's not verified, and it would be totally no. unreasonable to sort of say anything on that basis. No, understood. Okay, so um, did you have anything more to add on that? One? Well, I, only I wrote the story. So, I mean, I know uh, my sources were, were very reliable. Uh, what was happening was um, that there were a small number of, of deputies um, trying to recruit the support of, of like-minded colleagues to get uh, a motion of no confidence off the ground. Deputy de Summary became aware of it some time ago and I believe raised it inside her committee. Uh, the the efforts um, it clearly didn't prove um, hadn't yet proved successful because the motion didn't appear, uh, but but there was at one stage quite a lot of substance to it. Deputy de Summary was provided us with a quote which, which was is in the the press report, saying in one conversation that was reported to me, a deputy said we are going to bring her down. When asked on what grounds the motion of no confidence would be laid. The reply was, laughingly, we'll worry about that later. I think it, it is clear that what Deputy Burford says is, is correct, that this was an attempt to try to um, unseat or get off the ground a motion which could have led to unseating Deputy de Summeray as president. It was aimed very much at her. Uh, I, I expect there now won't be any sign of this, this motion um, in this state's term, but it, it definitely had substance uh, and credibility. And I mean, my understanding of it is that it um, it can be traced back to this thing we've written about quite a lot, and some deputies have spoken about quite a lot, that there, there is a divide in this state, like there hasn't been previously. There are two sides, not everybody falls down on one side or the other, but the majority fall down on one side or the other. Um, and I think Deputy de Summeray is, uh, is, is a leader of one side, has a high profile role, um, and, uh, you know, there was an attempt from, from others on, quote unquote, the other side um, to to remove the, the inconvenience of her leadership. But as I said, I now don't think it will come to anything. OK, thank you for that. Uh, let's move on. Deputy Mayor well, I, I, I would just, uh, uh, there's only one thing I would uh, uh, um, challenge uh, uh Matt on is that uh, the the divide actually I, I think there's two uh, two things here that worth people being aware of the nature of the states is I believe very different from 2016 onwards I didn't have experience of states before there but people like Deputy Burford and others have told me how different it is but then again it was a new structure of government a lot of things were rearranged so we are working under in a new model as it were and as I said, I'm on reshaping government. We can discuss that later about how we potentially will try and tweak that. And that goes to some of the challenge on the budgets and things like that. But uh, there was definitely a divide in the last states. There was, you know, 
parties by any other name and the majority was on the other side so whilst there is a lot of squealing about personality politics and there's you know there's coalitions etc the fact is the foot the boot was on the other foot last term it swung onto this foot, uh, the, the, whatever foot it is the opposite foot this time uh, uh, um, but this is is forming and actually i would like to see it formalized I would like to see the formation of parties and people declaring allegiances and when they fall out with parties, leaving those parties, as has happened this term. But I would like to see that develop because I think that's more constructive where the public can actually decide who they uh, support as a group because I think that's one of the ways we can move towards a more effective government when you've got a group that have signed up to a common manifesto. Now, of course, that hasn't worked out very well this term with certain parties. But that's, I think, personally, that is my vision for the future of the states, is moving more in that direction, because I think it also lends itself naturally to island-wide voting, which obviously I'm a big proponent of. That, that is, you, you make that point. That isn't really a great advert for the party politics side of things, is it? When, when we have the one remaining party, which led as its, as its absolute top priority, no GST, ends up being the party whose, whose former leader is leading the campaign for it. It, it, it didn't help in public trust. So, I mean, do, do you think that the prospects for party politics in Guernsey were damaged by that? Oh, I, I definitely think it hasn't helped. Uh, but then again, all the parties uh, that, that contested the last election were very much what I call top down. So it was a group of people getting together and saying, let's form a group, let's have a common manifesto, uh, and hopefully we'll be successful in the election. As we know, one party didn't get a single member in, so it wasn't necessarily a successful recipe. My desire is to see bottom up where you have a large number of members of the community who support a political agenda, who then choose which candidates they want to have representing them at the election. So it's a, a, a totally different structure and approach. And I think that approach would have far more credibility, far more support and would work far more effectively. So I think that is an inevitable consequence of, of island-wide voting. It will move in that direction because obviously groups can campaign far more effectively under island-wide voting than an individual can. So I think we might see a move in that way, but I'm hopeful it will develop. And again, what style of party politics? I hope we do not end up with a bipolar system of, of, of England and America where you have uh, effectively two dominant parties fighting each other and whatever the other one says is wrong. I much prefer the European approach, where governments are formed as coalitions. You have half a dozen different groups that represent different interests, and each of those groups may form a coalition to form a, an executive. And Is there room for that with 38 individuals in there, possibly fewer by the time that happens? Uh, well, uh, absolutely. I mean, you know, our, our number of deputies is driven more by the structure of government. I mean, if you went to a pure executive government, you could probably lower the number of deputies below 20. I mean, but, but, like but, I mean does that allow room for this kind of coalition style? I think it does, because we, 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 well, the, the parties that have been functioning are less than half a dozen members. You know, that I, I would like to see special interest groups, as it were, like forming a, 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 a group where they are focusing on the environment or they're focusing on something. And if they form part of that coalition, you moderate the extremes. One of the situations, the problems you have with executive government in a small island like this is, do we end up with extreme people with extreme views in executive positions without too many constraints and uh, scrutiny, enough scrutiny and challenge, running a portfolio potentially worth hundreds of millions for four years? 
Well, and how do you build a model that supports that? I'd like to move on, but I would, I'm interested, Deputy Burford, if you have any thoughts or observations on what you've just heard there. Yes, I do. I, um, As you probably know, scrutiny are conducting a review of the uh, last election of island-wide voting, being that it was the first time that we had... Um, conducted an election like that and so radically different different from what had been done before and in fact uh, Carl is on the scrutiny panel for this review I'm probably going to say a little bit less about island-wide voting and parties simply because because I'm on the review um, but you know Carl, Carl is up to Carl what he wants to say um, but what I will say is we will be putting out a survey to the um, to the community um, do Zanes any you know anyone and everyone who wants to respond to it asking a lot of questions about people's experience of the last election and in that we will also have questions that relate to parties and people's views on that so I think that's going to be really interesting when we get feedback from that to see where people actually stand on that so um, I'm I'm not exactly sure when the survey will be going out maybe in around about a month's time or so um, so Good to give a plug for that. What I would also say, though, is we have just extended the deadline for anyone who wants to um, submit what we call evidence to our review. So their opinions, basically, and their thoughts on island-wide voting. So if they want to um, send some evidence in, that's open for another couple of weeks. And that can be sent to scrutiny at gov.gg. So um, anybody who wants to put that in, please do. OK, so scrutiny at gov.gg. That's Simple it. As that. OK. Now, let's move on to uh, a related subject. You, you're talking there about one stream of your work. Another work stream that you have is obviously holding these uh, hearings that uh, that you hold on a regular basis, the most recent of which was uh, an invitation to PNR to come along and uh, be questioned about their uh, progress, different parts of their, their mandate. Uh, Matt, your uh, most recent headline on that from Wednesday, P&H and schools projects could cost 90 million more. Um, tell us from your perspective um, what you heard there on that subject and um, what you made of it. Well, this has unfolded over uh, the last two scrutiny hearings because the one before this week's with PNR was with uh, health and social care. And it was revealed, and I think re revealed is the right word, because in that uh, hearing with health and social care, um, Deputy Broad, when he was, was pressed on the costs of the next phase of the hospital modernisation, um, when when they had previously been estimated at something around 50 million, uh, revealed that, that he was expecting the cost to be over 100 million. I mean, it, it was it was so extraordinary that, that uh, Deputy Burford and her panel had to ask the question again and seek clarification. Um, but it, it appears to be the case that the, the projected costs of the next phase of developing the hospital have more than doubled. Um, in a relatively short space of time. Um, and then at the PNR hearing, um, as well as, uh, I, I don't think the cost had risen in the couple of weeks in between the hearings, but certainly a higher cost was being quoted again by um, the, uh, the, the PNR team who were at this hearing. But they also advised that the project to uh, develop secondary and further education um, the, the capital building costs, in effect, had, had gone from around 100 million to nearly 130 million. And they could well be still rising because there isn't yet an appointed replacement contractor for the, uh, the, the, the work at Les Osway. So 
um, these these pr two projects, which at one time were estimated in the region of about 140, 145 million, now appear to come with a price tag of 280 million. And that is possibly, perhaps likely to grow further. I mean, quite extraordinary revelations to come out of the scrutiny hearing that there was a lot besides but even if they that was the only thing to come out of the hearing it would have made it worthwhile and deputy burford um you were successful in the tax review debate in ensuring that in future the uh, states would have to sorry pnr would have to come back to the states for approval for any projects costing over five million and yet here we have overspends of more than five million that are not necessarily caught by the same no um, and it's a little bit net. complex but i'll i'll try and explain that the um it became clear when I was preparing the amendment and I was also up against the deadline on it. So if I'd had further time, I might have been able to come to uh, an agreement with PNR on a way to make it a little bit more limiting than it, than it has turned out to be. I mean, what it certainly does is it stops this authority going on through into the next assembly, which it, it would have been able to do previously. But the agreement that I came to was that open capital votes can continue because that because it I, I can see the disruption of trying to change it midstream in a project but nevertheless so therefore much of the capital spend this year or this term sorry won't be caught by it however that being said scrutiny have since written to um, policy and resources to ha and they have given us a full breakdown of all um, expended expected spends on capital projects, the amount has been spent today in that. So we now have that information, which I, I'm not going to reveal stuff from that because it was provided on a confidential basis at this stage. But we, we have that information. And so, th and we're also planning to meet with policy and resources. Um, we'll be inviting them to meet with us um, to, to discuss further, which is on partly on the back of the uh, the amendment that I laid. And as you can see, we are sort of holding them to um, pretty close account on these capital projects through, through the me medium of our hearings. So uh, success in terms of uh, getting the numbers revealed and to terms of well, how much um, taxpayers' money is being spent on this, but nevertheless, frightening figures. Well, to be fair, I mean, I think, you know, PNR would have probably provided that information to scrutiny anyway, but I think we want to now that, you know, we, we're taking a much closer look at it now that we've seen the way some of these projects are running beyond the figures that were previously given to the states and i think the um that the health one is is very revealing because deputy fairbrush said in december that phases two and three which are now combined and called phases two but it's just phases two and three uh had risen by 13 to 15 million he had he advised the states and yet when we had the figure from Deputy Bruard in the health hearing, I mean, I had to, I, even after the hearing, I was going back and pulling out figures and checking it because I couldn't believe quite what had been said because he said you know it was now over 100 million we weren't told how much over but over 100 million and I'm assuming well they must have included the, the 34 million pounds for phase one in that figure because there's no way that the phase two and three 50 million pound upper bound figure could have gone to over 100 million you know there's no so it's and that would have made sense if we'd included that because that would have made the 13 to 15 million that Deputy Fairbrush referred to as the amount that it had risen by so I was actually quite convinced for a period of time after the hearing that that was the case but no when we when we double checked it was quite clearly just the second phase that had ridden by 50 million pounds it's just remarkable 
And, and so have these massive overspends been adequately explained to you? Well, I don't think we can call them an overspend at this stage because the projects, you know, that it's all coming back, as we've been told by PNR and the capital portfolio in July, I think it is. Um, and, you know, PNR have said themselves that all of these projects are for reconsideration some of them may not go ahead in fact i think it's quite likely that some of them won't go ahead and it, that will be an issue for the states to decide but because they've been quite um not cagey with the figures on capital spends because the rules have allowed them to with this delegated authority to do that but what it's meant is that your average states member has not had the visibility on this and we never saw how we got from 50 to 110 or whatever it is now um you know that must have risen in stages i don't think it all rose overnight but I've asked and have been assured that all of the projects that come back for consideration in the capital portfolio will this time have figures attached to them, which, of course, they didn't in the original GWP that was debated. And Deputy Mayor I, I share Deputy Burford's concern as a member who's viewing this from the outside as, uh, uh, about the lack of visibility on these numbers. Now, the... Education, sport and culture budget going from 100 to 130 actually isn't that surprising because their project is predominantly construction. And speaking to my brothers and other people in the construction industry, that's the kind of number that they've seen, a 30% increase. And um, and because of the restructuring RG follow, of course, they fell away as a, a, as a potential uh, partner to deliver that. And they now have to seek a new partner. And, and the construction inflation is not changing. Literally, I was speaking to somebody about raw materials just in the last few days and they were saying that the prices are going up monthly and they see a monthly increase they don't even know what they can supply the materials at next month well i think the really important point on that that was made at the hearing is that um firms are not giving any kind of fixed price tender at all and so they therefore the, these figures there, there's no certainty in the latest figures we've got so it, you know it could well be beyond that i don't think anybody for a moment believes it's going to come in at less than the latest figures so yeah. it would appear to call into doubt the project itself. I mean, is, isn't uh, it only a matter of time uh, before uh, education, what, education, sport and culture have to come up with a plan B for that? Uh, um, everybody in health as well. Uh, I, I think we need to look back at these projects now, and it's going to happen in July. We're going to go through each one of these things and start having to be... Uh, uh, very uh, hard-nosed about what the states approves to proceed and what they don't. We're going to have to reevaluate and second-guess some of our decisions, I believe, yeah. and cut budgets. But when we go to the health budget, I do have greater concerns on that one because that's not a 30% construction inflation increase. That is an unexplained increase. And as somebody who's you know, been managing director, CEO of, of regional companies in Asia and North America, uh, in the corporate world, if somebody give you cost estimates and then come back with a price that's two or three times higher for the delivery, people will be fired. You know, and this is where I come. We have an issue here in the way that states work. This is not unusual for governments elsewhere as well as Guernsey to have massive cost overruns, but it's unacceptable that it carries on being perpetuated, especially in an environment where we've turned down, rejected GST as a sweeping new tax to raise 
huge amounts of additional revenue and we have to start cutting our cloth accordingly. So certainly myself and I think other deputies are going to be asking some very tough questions when these committees come back. And I must say that this is not a fault of the committee, the, of the politicians. This costing, uh, the way that costings are done, procurement is done, it's done by the officers. It's an operational function that deputies are not allowed to interfere in. So uh, I think that uh, we should be asking some very hard questions of the system that results in these kind of increases. Deputy Burford. Yeah, I think the important thing to say is when you look at the education project and the hospital redevelopment project, those two projects at their latest estimates account for approximately half of the original £568 million of the capital portfolio, which was all the capital spent for this entire nearly five-year political term. So when you're deciding what what can carry on and what doesn't, um, you know, those two just stand out because they are of such an order of magnitude. What was said in the hearing by PNR is that they are going to look to possibly do these things but phase them even more. So, I mean, the hospital was already in phases, but I, I'm not quite sure how that's going to work or indeed, um, you know, how that, I mean one would assume that that would be a more expensive way of doing it anyway. Uh, so so I think there's there's huge amounts of questions to be asked and, um, you know, the debate is going to be difficult to say the least. Do you think that we're now in a position where it's the school project or the hospital project? I, I think uh, it goes broader than that. You've got the old new runway. You've got loads of other projects. We've, we've, we've just uh, started spending 2.2 more, a million um, on a working group to look at the uh, development of the east coast of guernsey yeah what, but but, know, but these are the two largest projects in in the portfolio Co- do, it, do, do you you could still conceive of circumstances where both the hospital development and the uh, secondary and further education development go ahead in in this term despite the cost nearly climbing to 300 million uh, well i can only speak for my own personal opinion and uh, i don't think i can be convinced to support both those projects mm. on their current track mm. i would say that um uh, I, and that's my personal opinion as a, a, a as a deputy but the I think we've got to look at doing things differently. We've got to go back at those projects and say, were any of them gold-plated? Are there any things we can do differently? Can we look at addressing it? You know, I want to see our education system improved and our health facilities improved, but we're going to have to take a different approach. We physically cannot continue spending money at this rate, and especially when numbers are going up with this uh, to this degree, without turning around back to the public and the population of Guernsey and taxing the hell out of them to pay for it. You know, we, we have run out of reserves. We are back is to the wall. The rejection of GST, which I obviously campaign very strongly to have, because I don't want to see growth in government, but now the hard decisions need to be made. And I want to see all of these projects re-evaluated. I want to see them prioritized, uh, um, phasing things, just means you're going to take longer to, you, you're still committing to the expenditure you're still going to make it and as deputy burford pointed out quite likely the costs are going to go up even more uh, you're committing to a path that will end up with you spending money just a bit later i wonder if deputy i want to see it feels the same way is it the school's project or the hospital project for you um I'm not going to make a decision between those two on the basis of the information I have at the moment. I mean, the hospitals project was approved in the previous states in 2019. I have looked through the policy letter, obviously, in preparation for the hearings that we do. But I think it's really important that this is debated with much more information. So I'm not in a position to even say 
which way I would go on those. Mm. Uh, you're mentioning there, could it be one or the other at this rate? It could also be neither, I suppose. Well, I think that was commented I, on by a member I, of PNR. I, 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 I think, again, unless those committees can come back with uh, proposals to do things differently and reduce those costs, I think that is a distinct danger because literally we don't have the money to pay for it. What I would say on the education one, and I think this is a, a comment that perhaps a lot of people will feel, is that although I fully take uh, the point that Deputy Murray made in the hearing, that the new sixth form at Les Osways campus is not the same beast as a sixth form that's co-located um, or integrated in an 11 to 18 school. Nevertheless, we still have the facility to have an 11 to 18 school at Les Varandes um, and therefore not need the sixth form part of the campus. Um, I would certainly want to see progress, um, substantial progress on the Guernsey Institute because that's been in the pipeline for a long time. I think it's really important for, for that, that aspect of secondary and further education. Um, but there, I think there is a question, if there's any question mark for me, the question mark is over the justification of the, you know, shiny new sixth form uh, standalone campus down at Les Osway, when there probably are more pragmatic ways of providing good education to the children of this island. Another item uh, that we're expecting to cost a lot of money, you mentioned it earlier on with the, um, the Eastern Seaboard um, sort of developments and what have you. Um, and we, we need to be uh, clear that we're not sort of confusing the 90 million pool marina into all of this because that's just an invitation for people to come along and spend that kind of money for uh, an, as an investment. Um, but do, do you see that? Do you see the uh, hopes for regeneration in that area also being impacted by this um, fear of huge overspends? Um, I, I think absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, regeneration, if you're going to put projects in to try and regenerate an area and construction obviously is, is a big part of that and we don't have the money to fund it, then then things are going to have to stay as they are or the, the degree of regeneration and the degree, degree of investment has to be moderated. So ambitious plans may not be accommodated. So I am a bit concerned that we're spending money on doing ambitious plans that we don't, uh, on the face of it, we don't have the funds to fund are we, forward. are we in danger, though, of reaching a point where we're so cautious about uh, spending because of this uh, rampant uh, construction inflation that we that we reach a point of stasis where no kind of investment takes place of any kind, where I every project is in danger? That's, I think that's where we've been. Well, I'm not sure that that's what's causing it. I don't think it's a reluctance to spend that's actually the problem here. I think what the problem is, and the development agency is, is the prime example, it, it's with the development agency, in my mind, it's not about money. It's about process. Because we, I, you know, I don't want to bore your listeners too much with the sort of the process of the states. But essentially, there was a policy letter for harbours in the very early part of this term. Uh, an amendment was laid, which essentially kicked that down the road and said, instead, we'll do a development agency. So a year and a bit later, or however long it was, maybe slightly under a year, um, a policy letter came along for the development agency. That was amended to, to a point where the propositions bore no resemblance to what PNR's intention was. And it said that PNR needed to go away, come back with direction on future options for harbours. And once that had been done, and we haven't seen that policy letter yet, once that had been done, the Development and Planning Authority 
needed to take 18 months to do some local planning briefs before any work or even drawing up of plans for harbours could happen. And, you know, it doesn't take much to work out when we've got just over two years left to go, that that process is unlikely to be completed in two years if everyone sticks to the timescales. Um, we've been told there's a policy letter from PNR coming in June, but it certainly wasn't clear from the public hearing if that's the promised policy letter or just one to appoint the development agency. So, um, you know, th th those people haven't even been appointed yet. They, they've been identified, but it hasn't come to the States for an appointment. This is just eaten up and will eat up an entire political term before anybody thinks about sort of, you know, drawing plans for, for where we might be going. So it's not a money issue at this at this time. It's it's an absolute process issue interrupted every time it comes to the States with different directions to go down. And uh, yeah, I think it's a mess, really. I can, I, I, as, as you're speaking, I can picture the various people involved in, in, in wanting to invest in, in construction and in, um, in development, pulling their hair out at the, this slow pace of, of things. You are the two presidents of the parliamentary committees. What can you do to oil the wheels and speed things up and make this not happen again or you know well i think from a scrutiny point of view um you know the only power that we have i mean obviously i have a vote in the assembly when things come to the assembly but as a scrutiny president the power that we have is to do what we're doing and you know the public hearing i think with pnr was a prime example of that where we managed to really dig into this and to ask questions and it's inevitable in any public hearing that as much as you dig you don't uh, you will always come away with some follow-up questions to those things. You'll sit down, you'll listen to the um, the hearing again, which is great now we've got it on video. Um, so you, you listen to the hearing again. And in fact, I will, I'm going to have to leave you very shortly because I've got the wash-up meeting to, to the PNR hearing with the panel. And we will be writing to PNR for further clarification on things. And so that, that that's always an iterative process. So we will do that. What comes back from that may cause further actions, but it also informs our future hearings and what we can follow up so it's become much busier on scrutiny recently because obviously at the very start of the term there hasn't really been anything happening or anything but now there's a lot of things maybe not happening but going on uh, and th that's what that, I think that's the role of scrutiny and hopefully um, you know we're doing that quite well at the moment. Okay well aware of the time pressures then uh, can I ask you uh, we've got a states meeting coming up next week um, there's not a lot in it apart from the things that have been held over from previous yeah. uh, states meetings uh, have either of you written any uh, prepared any speeches for any of the topics that are going to be under discussion what do you expect to be the big tickets i think the big i haven't prepared any speeches yet but i think the big issue um or the one that's going to make sort of people's temperature rise a little bit is the development and planning authorities um proposals for um unsightly land and powers to actually deal with that because uh, i think that you know talking to other deputies there's certainly a range of views on that and i i don't think it's going to be plain sailing for, for the DPA with that policy letter. I, I would tend to agree with that. I, I don't write speeches generally in advance because being dyslexic, I'm better off working uh, um, uh, off bullet points that I prepare as I'm listening to debate. But uh, I, I've got the feeling the DPA is likely the most controversial. There are other other issues that will be touched on as well, but uh, it should be an interesting states meeting. Again, it's the first real uh, uh, get-together of the states since we rejected GST, and, and I think if members haven't already adopted a new mindset, they're going to have to. 
Well, I appreciate that you both uh, spending so much of your time with us uh, this afternoon. Uh, thank you very much for coming along, Deputy Yvonne Burford and Deputy Carl Mervell. And indeed, thank you. Uh, Matt, um, that's all uh, for now. Uh, but uh, do stay on this feed for, of course, uh, a preview of that state's meeting coming up next week and indeed a review of each day's proceedings uh, right here on the Guernsey Press Politics podcast. Bye-bye. <laughs>